multitude of my talents. So tell me, how you've been going through this pandemic and all the things that's been going on with that? Oh man, like every musician on the planet or anyone that's in the entertainment game, it's been a complete and utter mess. Uh, um, it's been, for me, it was an unbelievable, I was lucky in the fact that I'd, um, I've been a sort of a, an entrepreneur in the music industry in this last sort of five years in Australia and I'd built up a business and it was successful and I was not, I was in Chicago getting paid. I don't want to sound like, uh, like blowing my own trumpet, but I'd worked five years building up this business and it, and, and just as the business is starting to take off, I mean, we're working with United Airlines in, in Chicago, their home base in front of 3000 people. And it's all music related. So it's a big payday for me. And I'm like, thank the Lord. Eight days later, United Airlines had their hands out to the American government asking for money, looking for a bailout. That's how close it, and I was going into lockdown in Australia. And since then, man, it's just, I've watched my business after five years of growth just go to zero. Um, and I, and I've, uh, because there's no gigs, there's nobody getting on planes. Um, and there's nobody in the corporate space is going to put anyone in a room uh, in this current climate, even though, Things might be opening up a little bit and it's all a wee bit more relaxed. Australia has been lucky in the fact that it's had a no COVID cases worth talking about. They shut their borders because of the proximity to China. They shut their borders, I think, after New Zealand, like a couple of days later, they shut the borders straight away. So New Zealand was first, Australia was second. And that was like, that was three months before the UK shut it. So we got no big a numbers of there's no hardly any deaths and you're only talking a few hundred people had COVID in Australia in the last year so to answer your question man it's still been a nightmare business wise there's been no gigs uh like doesn't matter no one's allowed to there was so many restrictions even when they opened up the gigs again there's no money being made by anybody everyone's just sort of uh you're you're busy trying to get shit done but you're doing twice as much work to make a fraction of the money that's COVID in a nutshell you're doing a lot of work and making no money yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, Kieran, for those people that don't know who you are, we'll get to all the all the juicy points, but how did your sort of life and music and career begin? I mean, obviously you're a you're an Irish Irish tones coming from you there. So so how did it all start? Oh look, I'm I was brought up in a little outside a little village called Castle Dawson in South Derry, 30 miles, right in the middle of Northern Ireland, right slap bang in the middle. Um so Derry's 40 miles away, Belfast 30 miles away. So, but I just was, you know, started loving traditional Irish music, but was dragged kicking and screaming to fiddle lessons, didn't want to do it. And then at 11 years of age, bought my first guitar with potato gathering money, went gathering spuds like any good Irish man does and, and bought my first guitar. And uh, yeah, and... Yeah, I loved I loved playing the guitar. I always just wanted to be a guitar player then from I was 11 to 15. I just sat in my room playing classic rock riffs and learning songs off vinyl. So we're a country bumpkin. So I couldn't get into a band. There wasn't even bands. But me and my two best mates formed a band probably when we were about sort of 14-ish, I reckon, and practiced every weekend. Could barely tune our guitars. We were rubbish. and But we just kept playing and playing and playing. Before we knew it, by the time I was sort of 17, 18, I was gigging every weekend, roughly. I had an agent in Belfast doing cover gigs. So that was the that was the turning point. There's been a few major turning points, but that was the sort of, in a, in a nutshell, me getting onto a stage. I always still, I, I loved traditional Irish music growing up, but it was, it was classic rock and guitar riffs that brought me to music. It was 11, 11 years of age listening to, Seek and Destroy by Metallica or fucking, you know, Deep Purple's Black Knight or, you know, whatever, yeah. Rainbow. Yeah, yeah. Since You've Been Gone by Rainbow, Thin Lizzy, all that sort of stuff. And there, was a lot of, there was a lot of Scottish bands as well coming up through that sort of, you know, run rig and uh, big country. They were sort of crossing over. And when I was coming up at 16, 17, 18, you were hearing those bands. And there was a Aztec camera and, you know, those type yeah. of bands. Those bands, I was, I was, learning those songs at, at, for cover gigs and you know and obviously then you know the, the rock bands and you know there was a lot of punk bands like uh post-punk bands like uh, the undertones and Derry city which were massive influence and that was i just loved music loved particularly irish music i was a massive fan of irish artists and irish traditional music and you know the crossover one of the artists i worked with talking of irish traditional music was um Finbar Fury. So I was a uh, executive producer on Finbar's last album, and uh, and the album was called Smile. And he came to me, and you, you mentioned the potato thing. And one one of the, he came to me and he said, "Sham, I've got a song for you." You know, that's the way he approaches it. You know, so he calls me Sham. You know, so, so he says he calls it a lot of people Sham, but but I'm oh, also a Sham. So I, I, I kind of I kind of felt like I'm part of the club here. You know, I'm, I'm a Sham. You know, but uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, but anyway, so, so he says to me, he said, uh, "I've got this song for you, Sham. He says it's an old traditional." He says, but I've added a wee twist to it. And it was about the potato thing. And, uh, and it was, uh, you know, this uh, push to the creek. Won't you buy a box from me? You know, this kind of thing. And, and I was like, that's incredible, you know? So so he played the song. and But but 
his stories were incredible and you know the adversity that he had went through being because he started out in the traveling community and then he went on to the incredible stories incredible but so the fury his voice and their songs are a massive influence i remember the furies on the late late show doing uh down at the Red Rose Cafe, Finbar singing it. He's he's one yeah, of the greatest yeah. man. He's a great Irish singer. Yeah, that, that 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 was that song came from. I think it was the guy that worked with the Smurfs, um, and a Father Abraham. <laughs> it was Father Abraham, the guy that made the album with the Smurfs. Uh, oh wrote the melody of that song and it was a Dutch song, a Dutch uh, thing. And yes, they, uh, men- they mentioned Amsterdam. They mentioned that's Amsterdam right. and the harbour in Amsterdam or something about that's the harbour. That's right. And it was Father Abraham and, and, and the Furies liked the melody, so they changed the lyrics to whatever they wanted, the Red Rose Cafe. And Father Abraham had to sing. And then Ireland were playing Holland in the World Cup. Yeah. <laughs> In America, uh, 1994, and the Dutch fans were singing their version of the Red Rose Cafe in Dutch, and the Irish fans were singing the Red Rose Cafe. <laughs> yeah, if there's a song going on, the Irish will be singing it regardless. <laughs> Amazing! It was it was incredible. But but Finn, Finbar's a, a a fabulous artist and and uh, so talented. I mean banjos, whistles, flutes. You yeah. know, Julian pipes. Yeah. I mean, uh, probably pipes. one of the best. A wonderful pipe player. Just oh, incredible! I mean, just just what a musician, guitarist. I mean, mm. every instrument uh, that you could imagine. Finbar was always. Um, doing things, you know, such and such as, you know, we're having a benefit gig here, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're turning up at this. And, you know, I mean, Finbar was very successful in the the fact that, I mean, he did the soundtrack to There Will Be Blood uh, with Daniel Day-Lewis, the movie. He was on the soundtrack of Gangs in New York with Martin Scorsese. He was... You know, he was doing lots of film soundtracks because he could play the pipes, the Yulian pipes that was used in a lot of kind of big movies and so on. Any Irish movie that was out of Hollywood, there was always a wailing. There was always like a a low D on a keyboard that was really creepy. And then you'd have this dreamy pipe going over in the back of it. Every Irish movie ever that's shot in Hollywood. That's that's what happened. Mark Fury or Davy Spillane. (laughs) <laughs> that's the very that's the very one the very right and, and Finbar claims to have taught Davy so that's that's the thing you know <laughs> wow. yeah well yeah. Ireland Ireland's a small place as you know um and you said about the community of the musicians it's it's just it's ingrained in the Irish culture the the music in the home uh, and turning up at people's houses and having a session or the pub and then what's beautiful about it, that it's the, the, particularly the Irish traditional sessions for the youth, the encouragement for the young people to get involved. So you'll you'll turn up at a pub and a boy like Finbar Fury will be sitting in a pub in the, in the middle of County Galway or Clare and there'll be 25 children around him and maybe six or seven other local all playing a session. And they're all amazing musicians, the adults, and the kids are trying to keep up. And they're just there squeaking away on a fiddle or blowing on a tin whistle on a Sunday afternoon in the pub or the local Gaelic football club or something. So that's why 
the Irish community, music, the music community is pretty, well, it starts in the very DNA of traditional Irish music, and then it's, it's part of the Irish culture. So it's, a, yeah, it was a beautiful place to grow up as far as, you know, touring Ireland, I loved. You know, there was there's many a time I drove to Cork and played to six people, but I I still always had friends. Cork was the other opposite end of Ireland, but you know you could drive it in a night. Uh, when I was in a band in the twenties, yeah. but we were finishing the gig up at, at two o'clock in the morning. But the, you were you could cover the ground very quickly in Ireland, so you could be gigging in Galway one night and and Dublin the next, no problem. Or Cork. Was just, yeah. What was it like though for you, Kieran? I mean, because I mean, we got to the point where. You've got you're doing covers, you're doing gigs, and and so on. But I mean, I know how difficult it is to get gigs, especially because you know, Ireland they want. I mean, I'm not saying that at that point in time you're not uber talented. You probably are, but the reality is, is that even if you are talented, to get paid in Ireland, to get yeah. money out the promoters or the people that run the venues to get the actual shows, to get the posters made, to get the yeah. money together, to get the, the, the kind of professionality. It's a hard gig, that. Oh, man, it's tough. And and it's tough in Ireland because, well, it's that old saying, you're never, a, what is, you have to go elsewhere to be successful before you're accepted in your homeland. But Ireland's unbelievably tough because every family has got an artist, a poet, a musician. You know, there's there's so much art that's ingrained in the families, the, the communities. So if you're to stand out in the middle of that is 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 to get paid. Um, you know, the reason why I was getting paid is because I was going into the rough bars of Belfast and Derry. We had agents, we had an agent when I was 17, 18, we picked up an agent. We were playing in all of the roughest. But the so-called roughest areas of Belfast, the Shankill, one night, the Falls, the next, the Ardoin, these were all 100%, you know, run by the local paramilitary groups, whether it was the UDA or the UVF or the IRA or whatever. So you were, you were, you were, you were, you were going in and you were getting paid pretty well, actually. And the beautiful thing about going into those areas, you know, there was obviously the, the fear and the scariness of it all. And there's plenty of nights we, we saw things we shouldn't have been seeing when we were, but, but. The, the, particularly the clubs, there was tight knit communities again because they'd lived through so much violence and and pain that neighbors looked out for each other. So you, when you went in and did a gig in these places, the, it went off. The people were drinking and you know the life was tough during the week. So when it came to Friday night, fucking the, the party started basically. So I was I got such a, <laughs> such a wonderful I got such a wonderful education. That, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18. You know, right up until I was like sort of, well, at 21, I went back to study music, but I was still gigging every weekend and in those pubs. That was how I paid my bills. Um, from I was sort of 17, I was I was gigging. That's that's it. Um, and you know, every now and again, I would I would take a gig working at a building site with my dad or something. But night from I was sort of 20 years of age, I, you know, that was the, that was it. I was I'm, I'm 45 now. I haven't done anything else except gig for a living whether whether it's in the pubs of Belfast or whether it's in wherever around the world in sort of 1992 1993 I got booked to do Ireland and um I, at the time I was doing a, I had a rave band I was I was right it was at that time you know I was you know the the, the, the dance clubs were going mad and and I yeah. put together this rave band and uh, we had done quite well over in sort of Scotland and England and things, and we'd been to Germany. What was the name of the band? 
it was called Color Scheme. And Color Scheme, um, oh, color scheme yeah. So, so, this was an actual actual dance EDM kind of we, we did okay, but we went over to um we went over to Ireland and the laugh of it was we got booked in a place called the Arena in Armagh. I know. And, it. <laughs> yeah, well, Man, so many the, the night I stood in, in the arena in Armagh. <laughs> well, that's where we got booked. And, and we're driving to the gig and we had one of those kind of big fancy kind of custom transit van things. And of course, it stood out like a sore thumb. And we were driving from the the, the ferry dock up to, to Armagh, and the the army and and the, well, the police, but it looked like the army. If you remember that, it was like it was the, the police pulled us over. But we we're thinking the army's pulling us over, you know. But it was the police, <laughs> and uh, and of course they open up. They want to know where we are and what we're doing. And say, well, we're doing a gig in the arena in Armagh, and suddenly the we just remember they opened this box and we've got pyrotechnics. Yeah. And there's detonators with keys and buttons and flashes. You boys, you boys are in the wrong place with a box full of those toys. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you could just see the cops just looking at each other like, and I'm trying to explain, I'm going like, the pyrotechnics, and he's like, <laughs> and he's like we're not, we need to get these tested. Oh, I tell you what, it was it was pretty nervous times, pretty nervous times, and 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 yeah. another, we were in the, the in Kelly's in Portrush, was it? Another place, and uh, I had on uh, this. You you were at, you were in Kelly's Kelly's in Portrush. It's 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 an amazing place, man. That that it's actually lush. They called the night the the dance club. It actually closed down during COVID, finished after. But but that venue, man, every. Every person that's ever done anything at the highest level in the dance world has been through Kelly's. Um, you know, all the, the Carl Coxes, Paul Oakenfolds, the Mobies, all those sort of dudes. So you, you were yeah, getting well, there. What, what happened? What happened in Kelly's then with you guys? Well, I had a, a leather jacket. You've probably seen it, and it had all the flags in the world on it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> Yeah, I don't, I don't. So it's got all the flags of the world, Brazil and Mexico. I mean, America has got everything. I mean, it's just a bloody jacket, you know. I mean, to me, yeah, it's mate. nothing more. Don't, and, come and, to, don't come to Northern Ireland with your flags, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm standing back backstage, ready to go on stage. And it's like, you know, just about to go on the stage and this big, huge bouncer guy just grabs me by the back of the neck and holds me back off the stage again. You can't go on stage with that. <laughs> and I'm like, why, why not? I didn't realise there was a union jack on the back of it. Yeah. And he went, you can't go on stage with that. No way. Yeah. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, the crazy so, thing about so, it it, it would you could have started a riot just the wrong guy sees that you get hit over the head by a bottle and before That's you it. know it you have 300 oh, no. it was so difficult to understand <laughs> it was a great but yeah, well, i loved the irish crowds and i love you're very you're very right they were so passionate and so up there um, it, it wasn't like doing gigs anywhere else. It was really something special. Kind of envious of your 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 
upbringing there of, of going around doing all these venues, you know, week in, week out. I mean, we only got the chance to go a few times, but I mean, it must have been incredible growing up like well, that. Well, it's interesting that era you're talking about in the 90s. That was like I was in 93, you mentioned 93, I was 17. So the dance rave uh, culture was absolutely huge in Northern Ireland. Like it was massive and places like Armagh, the arena, Banbridge, um, uh, Newry, obviously Belfast and Derry, but all, every one of those towns had, and then Port Kelly's and Port Rush was the biggest because it was a university town. So you had everybody, every weekend from say Thursday through to Sunday, you had huge, I mean, 3,000, 4,000 people turning up at raves. And I was getting, I was getting stuck into the middle of that as well. Although I started on guitar, writing songs and all that, I was loving the dance music. I was absolutely loving these bands, these acts coming in, and the the whole the whole show of it all, you know, the entertainment yeah. of it, all, and the actual sound systems. There's nothing like standing in a room full of three thousand people and feeling sub bass. And, it, <laughs> and the, when the drop when the drop happens, you know, so Kelly's yeah. Kelly's something else, you know. I've actually just did a podcast with the lads from Ireland who, who were pretty successful at that time, the Dream Boys. Ah, and they, yes. Things can only get better and you're the best that thing. Big, and... That was a big song, that things can only get better. Um, he was, he was, I can't remember his name, but I know he's from Derry originally, the, the guy that... Um... Pete, uh, Pete, uh, Pete Canan. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. Yeah, they wrote, yes, wrote, wrote, wrote great music. You're going there, you're doing all these gigs. First of all, what were the challenges you had at that point in time, getting gigs, trying to get on stage, trying to get, you know, things to happen, get that first agent? I mean, what were your challenges at that time, Kim? Um, well, I, it, the gigs came quick enough. Like I say, I was prepared to gig anywhere. So there was always agents that were, were to give you £100 to turn up and sing Burn Eye Girl or whatever you wanted. they wanted you to sing. But generally classic songs, you would get away with it. So I was learning all these Beatles songs and what have you, just party songs, classic party songs. And if people wanted to dance, so anything that would get them on a dance floor. So I, then as the rave music came in, I was learning all these, I would have learned anything. I literally was into any style of music at that stage. I was just, I wanted to be on stage. So you had to follow what was going on. So you had plenty of gigs. Belfast was coming down with gigs. There was gigs everywhere. And uh, so I was picking up these cover gigs, but at the heart of it all, that was just to pay the bills. And in my soul, all I wanted to do was write songs and be be like any uh, young musician. You wanted to see your name up in lights and release music and get record deals and do all those things that, you know, that you dream of as a child. Um, and that was the tough thing for me. Uh, you know, that was a long journey. Well, I, I, and that journey really started when I was like, well, I had the dreams at 17, so I started writing songs. But at 21 years of age, I went back to a music college in Bangor. And I was, I was, I'd left school at 15, 16. And, and at 21, I went back to this really great music school. And I couldn't read a note of music. So they let me in just on, a, on, a, on my, I phoned up the guy on the phone. I was so passionate down the phone to him. I was like, man, I just want into this. I need to get into this course. Um, and it was wonderful because there was there was tutors on the course. It was a very loose sort of hippie vibe. It was laid back. There weren't there wasn't theory based. It wasn't a classical school. It was rock and roll. It was dance music. It was everything. Any whatever the hell you were into, avant garde jazz. 
So there's about five or six really, really good musicians, teachers, and these guys are all gigging. They're gig hard, and one was a drummer, one was a trumpeter, one had studied music, but he was a great pianist and gigged under every style. So you were every day turning up, uh, surrounded by like-minded people. That was the best way to put it. Um, great tutors. It was really inspiring, and I was 21, so it was perfect timing, and I was ready for it. So I set out at that point then as a, as a putting together original bands, and eventually, a, a, you know, I... I was writing songs continually and and sending them to radio stations. Couldn't get noticed at all for years. And at 24, um, I, with uh, a, a group of guys out of that bang, it started in that Bangor College. Um, we formed a band called Leia, and that was the L-E-Y-A. And with the band stayed together for seven years, and that was the sort of the real testing ground for me as a musician where we all, you know, lived on each other's pockets we lived in a house together we had a van you know we got in the van or the the people car and we drove to gigs and we gigged and we lived and breathed being in a band for seven years and that was the toughest hardest road but the most rewarding in so many ways because you know you get the little you work you work you work you work and then out of the blue uh, someone who saw you at some gig somewhere phones you up and goes hey or phones the manager goes saw the band can you, I'd like to offer them a slot supporting this band, you know. So we were getting on to festivals and 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 eventually we signed a record deal in Dublin um, uh, with a Dublin label, Rodriguez and Gabriella and Foy Vance's label, Ruby Works. Uh, they were owned by MCD, which was the biggest music promoter in Dublin, in Ireland. They're one of the biggest. They, yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, so yeah, we we that was the the real turning point. But it was it was maybe five years of slogging our guts out before we got the album recorded and then when we released the album it was nominated for like we were nominated as a band for best new band at the media awards in dublin and that was a big thing for us um you know being from the north of ireland as well northern ireland the whole political divide even getting nominated uh uh, was wonderful for us. So to go down into Dublin and 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 getting a bit of recognition, band from the north, and um, and you know I'm very proud that we 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 did what we did. But it was even then, at, after seven years, we all we all fell out of the band exhausted and flat broke as anything. Um, so it was one of those long hard roads where we did it all, signed our deals and toured and did all the festivals and went overseas and ticked all the boxes but we we just didn't make the money uh from that project which which was but again uh, you know you it's all how you view success and for me at that point i was i was i was just delighted to be standing on on stage supporting bands that i grew up loving and, and actually standing on stage at festivals and hanging backstage with all of these sort of superstar bands and meeting these people backstage at festivals it's the first time you feel like a a true rock star and you're vindicated for all the hard work you know we're sitting with where you are today and just to help students understand or or maybe get a little pocket of magic from you Kieran, if you were to think back to that band spending seven years getting you know obviously having highlights having things but you said you come came all of all of you came out flat broke but you had loads of experiences what would have what what went wrong then? What part of it didn't work? Because I mean, you obviously know now and can finger point now. Uh, 
we should have done that. We should have done this. What mm. you know? What 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 do you think went wrong with the? Oh, look, you, you could point many fingers at the, the the people that were around the band, but I wouldn't rather. I would rather not do that. I think yeah, the the, the blame has to fall uh, for not making the big bucks. It's a lot. It's many things. It's it's a lot to do with timing. But it, it, ultimately, the book stops with the band and the songwriters in the band, which was me. Essentially, I was the main songwriter. I didn't think we had this, we didn't have strong enough songs, firstly, to break through. But then when you listen to the album as a whole, it's a wonderful piece of music. And it's a, a, and the songs I'm very, very proud of. But we were, timing-wise, we had it came about maybe three, four years earlier. We would have been, I reckon, we could have been sitting in a different place today it's just it's a lot to do with timing um and when you drop that album i think one of the biggest things for the band that was was heartbreaking for us all was that we didn't release enough music quick enough so we kept mm. recording and kept refining and kept going back so you're doing seven versions of the one song by the time you got to release the song you hated it so fucking much that you just didn't want to ever play it again so so i think I think laboring, laboring something too much. You're too precious, and I think if you're if one advice piece of music, or one of a piece of advice I give to any budding young musicians coming up, is try not to be so precious with the, the music. It's just you expressing yourself now. Let it go, and put it out there. Let it go, and that's what we didn't do. We were too precious, and also we were guided by labels and managers and agents and fuck all of that. Take it all into your own hands and go, we want to put the stuff out. Take control of your own destiny by going, well, I've written this song. It's recorded. It sounds bloody good to us. Stick it out. Get it out whatever way you can. Don't don't sit around waiting for some magic thing, opportunity, the MTV or some television show is going to come along and give you some great opportunity to break your new single. That's Those things are you know one in a billion less. Uh, so just... Put the music out as quickly as possible. That's what I would say. Don't labour the stuff. You're right about timing. I mean, I've studied the fact um, quite heavily. It's what is the DNA of a hit record? What is mm. the DNA of... And, and there is a DNA of a hit record, in my opinion. And, and there is a, you know... I mean, I mean, I speak to students all over the world. Pre-COVID, I'm doing tours around universities, colleges, speaking to mm. hundreds at a time. Mm. And, you know, talking to them, uh, the mindset of a music producer, I'm speaking to them and, and they come out with things like, you know, yeah, but you don't want to be, you don't want to sell out, man, and, and, and be commercial, you know. Mm. And, and this, is, this is a kind of really common line that you hear from students. I was one of those guys in my 20s. I, I cared not for money or... Uh, to me, the success yeah. was being out there doing that. And, 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 and that's why musicians get ripped off left, right, and center, because we'll sign anything. Well, if someone tells us, you know, that's why we, in traditionally, so many stories, nightmare stories of, you know, everybody from Sting to Prince to you name it has been, has been ripped yeah. off. And, and that's why, because we love, we're creative. We're artists. We want to put. We want to create something, and we don't want to get bogged down on the fact that it's you know the money thing is kind of like oh, I don't want to attach it to my piece of art. But that's where we make the mistake because our art should be valued. 
and we should value our art and there should be a price put on it. And that's that's something that I very strongly believe in because, you know, no one else makes a, a there's no baker in any town in the world going, I'm, I'm, I'm making this best bread ever, but I'm not going to put a price on it. You know what I mean? He's not giving away the bread no. for free. People come in and give him money for his for his work and his effort and his creation. So I think that's that's one of the yeah. the, the the problems that we face in the music industry in general. Well, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I think the, the one of the biggest problems I I see, and I mean, I went to meet them so many times and sat down with the bosses of you know, the big companies, the big tech companies and so on and so forth and and had conversations with them about this particular thing because my, my biggest grievance in music is this whole thing of a download is 79 pence or 99 pence. Mm. But that pre preconceived amount of money mm. is preconceived not by the musicians. That's, yeah. that's preconceived by the tech companies. That's right. And you know, there's not a fashion store or retail store in the world that you walk into where the retail store dictates the price of the Gucci jacket or the price of the Armani jacket. It's Armani yeah. or Gucci that, that dictate the price of the the wholesale to the retail and so on and so forth. And yet we just go, oh, well, okay, you know, <laughs> it goes out and it's 99 pence a download. And for me, I've got an issue with that, but, you know, because, I, you know, who's to say, your track isn't worth a tenner. Mm -hmm. Maybe my yeah. track's worth, you know, 30 quid. Maybe I've spent seven months or seven years on this song. You know, yeah. I, I mean, so who's to say that's not worth more than 99 pence, yeah, you, you know? You're making, you're making a fair point. You know, art, be it sculpture, be it a piece of art that's hung on a wall or a piece of music that's created, shouldn't be dictated. The price shouldn't be dictated by anyone but the, the creator of the piece of art and then I mean, also you could create a piece of music say you're, you're you spent seven years and it's your masterpiece and it's something that's really close to your heart and and a lot of people are want a piece of that but that that piece of art um you know is going to be around forever it it, it why is it not going up in value either it, why is there no opportunity for that piece of art to go up and buy if there was a singular a piece of it made for someone to buy. I think the 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 putting knowing one's value is something that I've only learnt in the last five years, and I learnt it from a business woman going into business with a, a business partner, knowing the value of my time, what it, what I value, what how much it costs to get me in the room in front of people, uh, or or us putting a price on a ticket uh, on selling to get people through the door. So. Why are we letting, as artists, as creators, letting uh, an industry dictate to us? Why? Uh, but that it's changing. It's changing very quickly, and I can see in the not so distant future the fall of of, of monsters like even Spotify. Or, you know, I know there's a bit of a there's a movement happening already because musicians are making no money touring, and that's what we were relying on for so long. And now here we have this other monster that's in Spotify dictating how much uh, you get paid for the play. Well, they're, they're valued, I think last year, something at 5 billion. Um, yeah. and, and, and superstar artists who are getting a million plays of their famous song are getting paid a thousand bucks or something stupid. You know what I mean? It, it, 32, 30, I, I've got a record on Spotify 
I had over a million streams and I got £32 as a royalty check. There you go. There and you I've go. got it framed. Yeah. And, I'll, well, I, and, and, and I plan to take it over to Medem next time Medem opens up and I want to meet the CEO of Spotify and I want them to sign the check mm. for me mm. with mm. immoral earnings on it because that, that's what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an insult. The model itself is wrong. And this is what's wrong. You know, we could talk all day about modern culture and the way the capitalism has got out of control. But, you know, it's almost like a monopoly in so many industries. You know, you know you've got Uber monopolizing the taxi industry and you've got Airbnb monopolizing, you know, the sort of staying away at a weekend. Um, and then you've got Spotify, who's literally, it's, they've built, all they've done is built a fucking website that all this content across the world rests on and they're dictating how much we're going to get paid by, by play. And you said it, 1 million plays gets you 32 pounds or something stupid like that. Like that's, that's not a way to sustain an industry and it's not a fair way to treat art. It's not a fair way to treat music and music needs musicians. And we need, we all need to come together and take these, these uh, monsters on because that's what they are. This is a ridiculous situation where you've got, one massive super company dictating to an entire uh, industry. It's disgusting. It is. And I've always had issues with the way that music was divvied up because I think even, you know, I mean, I've had a lot of records out there where I've wrote the record or I've, I've produced the record or whatever. You can sit for a year or two and, and your royalties will come in from PRS or MCPS or whatever gamma or whatever uh, stim or whatever one it is that you're from and in it comes and and, and you, you know you're kind of like really is it, I mean how are they working this out you know how are they calculating this how are they collecting this and okay it's nice to get something but you still you still sort of wait when you're really I, I put myself so deep into the business and so deep into the actual uh, infrastructure of the business of music that mm. I sat down with the companies and I, and, I, and I, you know, really got into the nitty gritty, started looking at synchronization and licensing and all the various things and, you know, publishing and all of that and, 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 and looking at everything and sitting down and going, artists should be getting at least three, four, five times in some occasions of what they're actually receiving. But all of these middlemen people are getting put in place all across the industry that make it, you know, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, you join, you're told to join the MCPS as an example or the PRS, but if they're collecting your money in a different country, the organization in that country collect the money on behalf of MCPS PRS, and then they take their percentage. Yeah. Then they send it to PRS MCPS, and then they take their percentage. And then they send it to you, and then you're taxed, and then you're left with your percentage. Yeah. And so now you've paid, you know, you've had triple taxation on your money. <laughs> Whereas yeah. if 
what I learned years ago was I had to join all of these organizations in every country that my music was being released in. So in Sweden, STEM, for an example. So I went and joined STEM in Sweden. And so they paid me directly. And then, you know, this one paid me directly and that one paid me directly so that I was cutting out this middleman thing. Which again, the first year I did that, I increased my money almost by double what I was getting before. And 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 so and, and on songs that were past catalog songs. So it was roughly the same every year type thing. But I mean, no one's teaching the kids these things. No one's going out there and actually explaining this is what you need to do because it just feels to me that, that the industry is is wide open for um you know a good idea and 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 someone like yourself or other artists like you know to, to turn around and say you know well well we are going to come up with something cool and the coolest thing that i've heard in recent times was a rapper in america decided not to put anything on digital at all mm. and he said um he had about 35,000 fans, something in that region. He said, I'm just going to go directly to my fans. Mm. So he, he had his Instagram, his, his Facebook, and other social media platforms. He said, if you want the album, the new album, you come and get it from me. He had done some cool artwork things that he said, I'll email you the, 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 the package, and you can pay with this system. And he charged... I think he charged forty dollars for the project, yeah. and um, and he sold twenty six or twenty five thousand something in that 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 thing. So he made some money, mm-hmm. and you know I know artists that are way bigger in support that are trying to go through the normal digital distribution platforms that have made a fraction of what he's made. So I think there is there is uh if you do have a fan base, I think there is this direct line that can be taken. Um, but I think there's also it's difficult for maybe the new artists to try and make that break. Um, I mean, obviously, when 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 you were going up with your band through that seven-year period, you mentioned a lot of components that I don't think exist today. Um, you know, whether it be the best promoters, the best agents, the best record labels, the, the this, all, all of these PR people, publicity, all of the things. Today, that seems to be a kind of forgotten art, you know, in a respect, because everybody thinks I can go direct myself to social media. I can skip all of those points and suddenly there's no experience of marketing or branding or... <laughs> you know, whereas the experts are kind of lost, you know. Yeah, look, I think I think today, look, there's 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 it's a tough balance. You you can't do it yourself. I've tried, I've tried many times, and I've worked the the eighty hour weeks trying to do it myself. You do need to buy find yourself a bit of a build yourself a bit of a posse. So you're sharing whether it's a band, whether you're in a band or whether you form a band of people that believe in you if you're an artist and and one takes on the marketing and does all the social media malarkey. The other maybe helps with artwork and the design of you as an artist and designing something that's tangible that you can sell to direct. I still believe getting in the room is the best thing you can do and I'm doing it now at the minute. We're, 
Australia's international borders are closed. And even going over, over the states into like Victoria, where Melbourne is, which is the music capital of Australia, has been in something like four or five lockdowns uh, over very small numbers. Worst, the worst lockdowns on the planet Melbourne has went through. Um, and it's been ridiculous. So I'm, I'm out now going, right, well, how do I survive as an artist? And I'm still doing what I've always done, and that's get in front of people. So we're booking tiny little venues in New South Wales, the state I'm in. I look at it, there's 5 million people in Sydney. I live an hour south of Sydney. There's 8 million people in this state. If I, even if I'm getting in front of 50 or 100 people, whatever it is, small numbers, 30, go to country towns and go and do it. But if you can build a fan base that way, those people will come back and see you and you sell your stuff at the gigs. Make, give them a T-shirt, give them whether the, it's a USB stick with your album on it or hardly any, people will still, if it looks good, if it's a book with artwork with you in it and maybe a CD in it or a USB or a link to download the digital version of it, at least it's something tangible. You can sign it for them on the night and they're, they're giving you 30 bucks for it or 40 bucks for it or whatever it is. That's, that's my model now, to be quite honest. I'm, I'm, I've been through working with labels and publishers and, and industry in general. I am so over it, mate. I will never sign another deal to anyone. I'm, I'm just go, I'm going to go 100% my, myself. I've got a wonderful manager, and the two of us are doing it together. And that's the attitude I have. I think, but I think, I think everyone needs everyone in the industry needs to take that attitude um, because the labels, these middlemen. They never had the the musician at heart. They never had the art at their heart. They just want to make money. And not only do they want to make money, they want to screw the artist into the ground. Uh, how many stories yeah. from, from the pop world to the rock world to the dance world has the artist been run into the ground, exhausted, coming out broke after an 18-month tour while everyone 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 in the record industry is flying around in private jets and snorting cocaine? It's a, it's a joke, man. It's an yeah, absolute not joke. <laughs> it's, 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 it's well, well put though <laughs> how did you get then so, so you, you, you finished the band seven years in the band how did you get to decide okay I'm going to Australia now well I actually I went to Australia with a Scottish a Scottish man <laughs> a man called Paul, <laughs> you, really? a, a man, yes, you know Paolo Natini uh, the, yeah the I do very well yeah well, I gigged with Paolo, uh, like as supporting with uh, Paolo when he was touring in Belfast and even in Scotland, I done support slots. And I remember being in Glasgow with him. Um, and then there was a tour coming up. He was touring Australia. So he was, he was on his first album and it was breaking in Australia. And my manager knew a, a, a big promoter in Australia called Michael Chug, who's still after 40 years in the business. Um, is still you know up there with the biggest in the world he's, he's world renowned so michael chug was organizing a festival in perth and in, in western australia and i had a few gigs with paulo in melbourne and sydney so i was like right i'm going to australia for the first time and and that was it i i came down to australia then and i met andrew farris from in excess the keyboard player from in excess at a party in sydney and uh this is how I ended up in Australia. Um, so that that 
tour with Paulo was only a few weeks and I absolutely adored Australia and I went back after meeting Andrew we socialized for a few nights and, at parties and drinking at two and three in the morning and playing songs and listening to music and I, I was telling them every night you know after these two or three nights of partying I was like you know man I'm such an NXS fan I've loved your I've always loved your band and you know I used to watch NXS live at Wembley at a VHS copy of it and uh, and uh so after about three nights of socializing and then listening to music and singing other people's songs, he said, why don't you sing an NXS song? So <laughs> I didn't know any, I didn't know any NXS songs. I hadn't learned any, but I remember saying to him about Mystify, the song Mystify. I remember watching NXS. Actually, Andrew sitting at the piano and Michael Hutchins sing it. And it was like, it was top of the pops and it would have been around, probably around 1988, 89. Um, but I, I remember it specifically sitting in my mother's living room watching this performance. It was acoustic performance of Mystify, so I knew the song. So they printed out the lyrics at three in the morning at this party in Sydney. And I'm he's playing guitar, Andrew's playing guitar, the guy that wrote the song. And I'm singing the song probably pretty badly because we were all a, a bit sideways at that point. Um, <laughs> but... Um, now he, he he looked up after me after the song and and, and he said, "Man, that was that was great." And he, and he and he he said, "I think you might play a role in the future of NXS." And I sort of like there was this silence. <laughs> I was I thought I'm never going to hear from this guy again. He's he's absolutely <laughs> hammered, drunk. I'll never see this guy in my life again. But thanks, mate. <laughs> so I uh, I flew back. I, I said my goodbyes the next day and, and I headed home to Ireland. And of course, I'm telling everybody that I met Andrew Farris from NXS and had the best time in Australia. And if I ever get a chance to go back there, I really loved the place. I remember for three or four months dreaming of Australia. And then out of the blue, I got the call. And he, he, he phoned me up and said, look, mate, would you come down to Australia? We'd like you to try out to sing for the band. But my my career... Prior to that, I'm sort of jumping over this sort of stuff, but getting into Australia, I, I, after Leia had finished in seven years, I had a, a sweet spot of maybe four years of just writing and producing. So I was, I was doing loads of stuff and I was working with, you know, movie soundtracks and that sort of stuff. So he was more interested in me as a writer. So I, I went down for four days to Australia again because my wife was like seven or eight, seven and a half months, eight months pregnant at that point. So I couldn't go down for any longer. So I'm down to Australia, auditioned for the band, and Andrew and I wrote two or three songs, or two finished and started another one. And I, on the last day, we, I was in the rehearsal space with NXS, and I got the gig. They just said, look, man, the gig's yours if you want it. So I went home to my, my heavily pregnant wife and said, when this baby's born, we're going to move to Australia. Let's get out. I've just got the gig singing with NXS. So that was, that was, that's how that all happened. Amazing. That, that must have been incredible. Ah, man, the most surreal. There's been amazing things happened in my life since. Um, really amazing things. But at that, that period of my life has been, has and I doubt will ever be anything like it. More bizarre, wonderful, jaw-dropping. You know, every day they seem to be. I was, I was, I was with them for, for about 18 months. Um, and, you know, obviously moving with the young family down to Australia, getting settled very quickly. And two months later, I was on stage with the band. The first gigs were in South America. I was in, you know, first gig was in Peru and Arequipa. 
uh, in the you know high up, there was oxygen tanks side stage because it was so fucking high in the Andes or whatever, wherever we were, there was condors flying above us. You know what I mean? It was bloody <laughs> high. Um, and uh, then the next two nights later, that was the most bizarre gig because I I just was like uh, the penny dropped for me. We were in Buenos Aires, we were headlining a festival, and you know Ziggy Marley's in the room smoking a reefer before we go on stage. Fucking Liam or no Liam Gallagher standing you know sh- across the way and the, sharing the same. And I'm standing there going, you know, fucking six months ago I was back in Belfast doing you know gigs, and here I am in Buenos Aires, you know, about to walk on stage singing New Sensation and Suicide Blonde and Need You Tonight with NXS <laughs> in front of 30,000 people. It's like, it's surreal, surreal. Well, it must have been the, the first time that you went out there to that kind of crowd and, and the, you know, the, the, the first notes of Need You Tonight kicks in and the crowd, you know, that feeling, that, that kind of, I've managed to experience it a couple of times in my life, but, you know, you get that cheer and it kind of goes through you. <laughs> yeah. and you're standing there and, you're, and, and you get that cold sweat that just goes woof incredible feeling yeah yeah the, uh, every night for me was wonderful I'd start the stage I'd start behind the drummer John Farris and I'd be on a riser and the band would kick into Suicide Blonde and right. it's just it was just amazing you just see this ocean of people bounce up and down together and it's just amazing. And the band and the loudness of the kit and the and the bass amp was just beside. I had to step down and walk behind the bass amp. And you know, I'd got in ears in, but you're just standing in front of that, you know, John Farris and Gary Beers playing, you know, Suicide Blonde. And I remember screaming, you know, at, at that gig in Argentina before I got to because the, there's a big long intro with all the harmonica and it's flying and the audience are going mad, but I was just the sheer adrenaline I needed to get it out of me. I just was like, took the microphone out of, away from me and I just, like the biggest primal scream I've ever done in my life, uh, just to <laughs> let, let it out. And to take, to take it all in as well, mate, you, when you're, when you, I, thankfully I was probably 36 when I got the gig. Yeah. Um, and I'd lived a lot of life at that stage and I made a lot of mistakes as a musician um, on stage uh, to know that, when this came, I enjoyed every second of it. Because in the past, that's what I would say to young musicians as well. Fucking, it's it's not it, it's not a sprint. Take your time and enjoy the moments. If you are standing on that stage at that festival that you've always dreamed of being on, or or that local club that you've always dreamed of playing in, wherever it is, fucking enjoy it. Don't fret. It's only a gig. At the same time, there'll be a million. There'll be a. There could be a thousand more. There could be a million more. But you know, when I got the NXS gig, I I I took it all in I, I i i was well prepared i knew the songs and i settled in pretty quick after two or three gigs i was just like yeah i'm like i'm really enjoying this and and, and loving loving the opportunity to fire up an audience to stand in front of ten thousand people and you know in an arena and just have them all fucking clap their hands it's like it's better than sex man <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, <laughs> prior to that, you know, you're, you're right, I jumped the gun, but prior to that, you, you, you're writing songs and things. I mean, I mean, you, you had a bit of success with that as well. I mean, that wasn't just, 
I mean, that was that was pretty cool too. Yeah, look, the, the first real taste of success, if you want to call it financial success and, and all types of success was with a hit, was actually with, with Madonna. Um, and that was a, a song called Celebration. I co-wrote it with, um, it's a, there's four writers on the song, Madonna's on the song, myself, a guy called Ian Green, and Oakenfold, Paul Oakenfold. Um, and I'd, I'd written... The, the, the opportunity came because I was writing with Ian Green. He's a British guy based in London, wonderful producer and writer. And I was flying in. After Leia broke up, I was flying into London maybe twice, three times a month, staying with my manager. He lived in, uh, near Gatwick. And I'd fly in, do Monday to Friday writing songs with whoever would write with me. And in the first sessions, I was writing with Ian Green and uh, he, he was doing a lot of stuff with Paul Oakenfold and you know talk about being in the right place at the right time I um Oakenfold wanted to hear what we were doing he loved the stuff and that week he just happened to be talking to Madonna and they were mates and she was doing stuff with them and and he was he she was going well send me through some music what you're doing and he said well here's some stuff that Ian Green and this Irish guy's doing you know what do you, what do you, whatever you think, well, let, let me know what you think. And she recorded two songs that we wrote. And uh, one of them was the title track of her greatest hits, which was called Celebration. And yeah, talk about bizarre being plucked out of obscurity as a songwriter, you know, to, you know, number ones across the world and, and you know, and then a Grammy nomination for the song as well. It's like fucking, it's ridiculous, really, you know, bizarre. <laughs> Did you actually work? Was there at any point did you ever get to meet her and sit and chat with her about it? No, sadly not. Um, I the glamour of the music industry. I wrote the song with Ian in his back shed, converted into a studio, and his his little uh, little shed at the back of his house. And then he flew to New York, um, and I flew back to Belfast. <laughs> and uh, and that's he, he he was in the studio recording Madonna's vocals while he was pho- I was phoning him going what's she like mate that's that's as close as I got to Madonna so <laughs> <laughs> all through this Kieran there's something that's coming through uh, speaking to you is you you have an incredible amount of enthusiasm for what it is that you're doing. Mm. and a lot of dedication to what you're doing and and almost, dare I say, obsessional about what you're doing. Is that fact? Is that the way it is? Or were you just talented and fell oh, into no. work? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, like I'm, I, there is obviously talent in, uh, in what I am, but without a doubt, determination and hard work and a never-say-die attitude is the reason why I'm sitting here now at 45, still doing music, still earning a crust, refusing point blank to do anything else. Uh, when when everyone around me, including family, friends, thought I was a fucking lunatic, you know, just literally thought I was a lunatic for, for wanting to be a musician, you know, and, you know, you, you, it, you know, with family, they're just trying to protect you because, but, in Northern Ireland, growing up in Northern Ireland, particularly when I grew up in Northern Ireland, being a musician was 
you were you had to be pretty mental if that was your your quest in life uh if that was your your because oh. there wasn't there wasn't a lot of opportunities um but it you, you know i i think there's nothing better than to follow your dream i believe that life is um very short um and i believe that you know you know what's the point in doing any, do, spending time uh, with your life unless you're doing passionately fighting for and, and and striving for stuff that you want to do and, and I genuinely believe if you put enough energy at something that you really want to do then the good stuff starts coming back to you I always believed that you kept pushing and pushing and pushing and and then sometimes you, I, that one of the problems was I'd push too hard and you go oh, then I'm 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 I'm, I'm ruining my myself by doing that and i I, i've learned as i've got older just to enjoy music and 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 now i'm in a position where particularly living in australia you know uh, having the association with in excess has certainly helped me wonderful you know but also the the experience i've I've done and it comes with age i suppose 45 years of age i'm 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 very happy to to say that I've done nothing else with my life except music and I wouldn't have changed a thing. There was some unbelievably tough times. Um, and, you know, financially musicians, you go like that literally all the time. It's like you're making, you might have a good year then down, you're, 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 you're up and down, but it, 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 it you know, I, again, I've never won, I've never been one to strive for the financial side of it. It always has been the joy of standing on stage, the joy of, of writing and being involved in a room with creative people and coming up with stuff, you know, music to me is something magical. After 30, 40 years of doing this, I still, I still am, I'm amazed by the joy it brings to me. And also when you, when you stand in a room and watch an audience, no matter if it's 10 people or if it's 10,000, you can see it. You can see that it literally the body language of people changing when they that when that song comes on that they love. It's it's, it's a very powerful. Thing. I live for the moments. You wanna dance? Yeah. Come join the party. Yeah. Let's get this. Done. 